Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers continue our new series on the Gospel of John with a discussion of the healing of the paralytic in John chapter 5. Before we get into the episode, though, we wanted to remind you that we have a new ebook out from Peter Lightheart on the topic of Pado Communion. All you have to do to get that ebook is to sign up for our weekly newsletter where we send you all of our articles, podcasts, and videos for the week. A link to sign up for that newsletter is in the show notes, and you can also sign up on the homepage of our website, theopolisinstitute.com. With that, we really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this discussion. And here are Peter Lightheart, Alistair Roberts, and Jeff Myers discussing the healing of the paralytic in John chapter 5. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers and Alistair Roberts. Uh, Brian Motes is, uh, as always, running our technical side and making sure that we get recorded and we're uploaded for the for you to listen to us. For the last several weeks, we've been working through the Book of Signs, the first half of John's Gospel, and talking about the incidents in John's Gospel, some of which are explicitly labeled as signs, others that have been traditionally recognized as signs. And uh, we're just looking at these, these passages as we... Uh, work our way through John's gospel, plan to do this up, up until the beginning of Advent, and we'll again, we'll remain in the gospels during Advent, but we'll turn our attention to the early chapters of Luke uh, as we go into the Advent and Christmas seasons. Uh, this week we're in John chapter 5. Uh, this is uh, one of the incidents that's not labeled explicitly as a sign, but it, it's a miraculous healing that functions as a sign. It, it uh, has the characteristics of the things that Jesus does that are, are labeled explicitly as signs. And I think this is, this is a kind of a turning point in the gospel uh, in a couple of ways. One is the, the other signs that Jesus has performed uh, have been more or less uh, secretive, more or less private. He turned uh, water into wine at a wedding feast and virtually no one but his disciples know who's done it. Uh, he lets the bridegroom take the, the credit for serving the good wine at the end. Uh, and then in the second sign in chapter four, uh, the healing of the son of the, the royal official, Jesus heals a uh, son from a distance. The official knows what happened. The household knows what happened, but it's not something that's done in public. This third sign with the paralytic is something that Jesus does in Jerusalem, in public. It becomes a, it becomes a, a public event, and that leads to a second, second observation, again, about a turning point, um, the fact that this is a turning point. The, the fact that it's done publicly and there is a people find out that Jesus has done it leads into a lengthy debate with the Jews. Throughout John's Gospel, the Jewish leaders are just labeled the Jews, uh, when it says the Jews are in opposition to Jesus, it doesn't mean every last Jew. That's obviously not true. He's got disciples who are Jews. He's got crowds following him. They're largely Jewish. The Jews in John's gospel are the Jewish leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, and, and particularly the priestly class. Uh, but the Jews began to begin to oppose him and criticize him for breaking the Sabbath and then for the things that he says when they challenge him on the Sabbath question. And this becomes a pattern through the next several chapters of John's gospel. Jesus does a 
a miracle he does assign, uh, but a large part of the account is taken up with the debate and the scandal that occurs afterwards. So we have Jesus is kind of emerging into public here with uh, with a public sign, and as he emerges into public, there's more public and more vigorous opposition to Jesus and his ministry. Yeah, it, you can also say that uh, beginning with chapter five and going through ten, you have um, a these judicial settings. It's not just arguments, but it's Jesus on trial. Uh, but mm-hmm. Jesus always turns the table and puts his accusers on trial. Uh, and that happens in John 5, too. You see that uh, all of a sudden in verse 16, the Jews are persecuting Jesus or pursuing him. Um, the dioko in the Greek can also refer to prosecuting him. Um, but in the end, um, he calls his witnesses and he prosecutes the case against them. And that's how it ends uh, at the end of uh, chapter five. That comes up with surprising frequency uh, as we move toward Jesus' own trial uh, in Jerusalem. Right. That's exactly what I was going to say. That the uh, it's leading up to the uh, the literal trial of Jesus when he's before Pilate, which is it's flipped in the same way, and it becomes a trial of the Jews, and they're they're self condemned by their by their reaction to to uh, Pilate's question. This passage is also one in which we see. Uh, paradigmatic situation of discipleship that's juxtaposed and compared with chapter 9. There's the healing, but then there's also another encounter later. And reading the two accounts alongside each other helps us to see part of why John is highlighting these events so much, that what happens in chapter 5 and what happens in chapter 9 are two pictures of responses to Christ. Right. And, and part of the part of the scenario in both of those chapters is that uh, the recipient of Jesus' uh, healing, uh, the paralytic here and the blind man in chapter 9, both of them are confronted and attacked in Jesus' absence. So uh, the man is healed and the Jews wonder why he's carrying his pallet. You can't do that on the Sabbath day, they says. They say, and, and uh, they ask him, who told you to do it? And he doesn't know because, verse 13 says, because Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. So Jesus heals and then disappears. He heals and withdraws. And that's the same thing that's going to happen in chapter 9, more elaborately, where the, the blind man is, he's put on trial in Jesus' absence. And he has to, you see this growing confidence in response to the Jews' attacks. And this, there's a process of, uh, as you say, a kind of a growth in discipleship. But it's taking place during Jesus' absence, which I think is significant for John, uh, given his discussion of, the upper room discourse is all about Jesus going away and leaving his disciples, and they will suffer the same persecution, the same attacks that he has. Uh, and he tells them that explicitly in the upper room discourse, but we've already seen that happening through these different incidents. Uh, when Jesus uh, heals somebody and then withdraws, that's a, that's a model, a model of discipleship. What's going, it's what, what's going to happen to the 12 eventually. The symbolism here that John brings out, too, about uh, the pool. The, the water, a body of water, with sheep around the water, um, and five colonnades, roofed colonnades. Um, it, if, if you think about what happens here with this particular sheep and what Jesus uh, accomplishes for him, and compare it to John chapter 4, where he was also 
in Samaria uh, at a well uh, and presented himself as the husband to this um, woman who symbolized uh, Samaria as her true husband. Now he's back in Jerusalem uh, and it's the sheep here. He presents himself as uh, a new Moses, if you will. In John 4, he was a new Jacob. In John 5, he's a Moses who not only waters the sheep, but also fends off the false shepherds, the enemies of the sheep as well. Um, I think, <laughs> I didn't look at this, but um, I think Jim Jordan and I wrote an essay on this in Biblical Horizons 20 years ago or so. I, I printed it off and then I didn't get chance to read it, but I think that was one of the arguments we had uh, for seeing this, seeing Jesus here as a new Moses. And seeing Jesus as a new Moses, if we see Jesus as a new Moses, we can also make sense of the detail that there are 38 years by the pool. In chapter 2, verse 14 of Deuteronomy, we read, and the time from our leaving Kadesh Barnea until we crossed the brook Zered was 38 years until the entire generation, that is the men of war, had perished from the camp as the Lord had sworn to them. It's the period of wandering after the rebellion in the wilderness. And as a result, you have someone here who's representing the desire to cross over, enter into the promised land, that stirring of the pool that might remind us of making that water living, um, the crossing of the Red Sea, um, the description of the wind upon the sea, that these sorts of things are all details that um, recall that great deliverance in the past. Yeah, I wonder what uh, we're looking ahead to uh, next week's uh, episode where we have the uh, Jesus feeding the 5,000 around the time of Passover. And that leads into a lengthy discourse about manna and Jesus and God feeding Israel in the wilderness. Chapter 5 does seem to be more, uh, given the 38-year reference, uh, the passing through the water seems to be more of an entry into the land rather than strictly an exodus. And and it's almost like you're you're moving in reverse. You have a you have a, a sign that picks up on Israel's wilderness sojourn and then their entry into the blessing of the land, followed by a Passover Exodus sequence. Uh, maybe they're just overlapping and we should read them both together. But it, if you're looking at these sequentially, it does seem like you're kind of moving backwards through Israel's history. So are you are you suggesting that Jesus here is like a Joshua who leads the sheep um, into the promised land, into Jerusalem, and uh, into the temple, basically, into the place of worship? That's where he meets the man afterwards. Um, yeah, that would be that would be the more. That's what I, that's what I think would be the stricter typology. If if we're emphasizing the thirty eight years in particular, and He's got to pass through the water in order to be healed after a 38-year sickness. That's Israel in its um, in the wilderness, ready to go into the land. Mosaic typology is still there because you have the uh, strong parallels between what Joshua is doing leading Israel into the land and what Moses did leading Israel out of Egypt. Uh, Joshua himself is like a second Moses. Jesus' very name suggests a connection with Joshua. Once he gets in the land, then he has to fight off the Canaanites. Yeah, right. The fact that the Sabbath comes up might also be an indication of that. Entry into the rest, that's a, entering into the land is an entry into the rest. And the, and the debate, the conflict that comes up after his healing concerns the Sabbath. 
Another overlapping thing that the Sabbath is relevant to this too, you have a kind of fiat act here. Jesus sometimes does things in order to heal people. He touches them. In the, in the parallel story of the blind man, he works with the mud and puts it on the man's eyes. So there's certain actions that he is involved in. In this case, though, he simply speaks and doesn't even speak. He doesn't even tell the man, be healed. He just tells him to get up and take up his pallet. So there's a kind of uh, fiat, new creation theme there. Arise would be the same term that's used for resurrection. So rise up from your 38 years of living death. Uh, and then the man begins to walk and it's the Sabbath day. So we have these creation motifs that are surrounding the, that are intertwined with the, the mosaic or Joshua typology. Uh, and um, piggybacking on that, the um, powerlessness, the impotence of the old system, the old way, it's just not working anymore. Uh, all these sheep uh, have no way of uh, finding their sight, their uh, being able to walk. Um, it's all, uh, and wh- whether there's an angel who actually comes down to stir the water or not, it's a manuscript issue, but it certainly is consistent with the way uh, angels manage the old world. All that's just not working anymore, and Jesus is coming to uh, uh, to bring new power and new life to the situation. The fact that this is is an event that occurs on the Sabbath, again, seems to be a very important part of what Christ is highlighting, that it is a true form of rest that he is giving to this man. The man is called to pick up his instrument of rest, and then the Jews protest. It would seem that healing a man in such situations is a breaking of the Sabbath. He should have been left around for a few more days, but for another day or so, and Christ should have come back. But Yet Christ is showing what true rest means. Um, Joshua gave some preliminary rest in entering into the land and the conquest of the land. But Jesus is giving a far fuller rest. And yet it seems that the Jews object to that. And in that point, Jesus challenges them. Uh, Jesus, uh, John wants us to know that Jesus uh, has a, a Sabbath understanding of all these festivals, it repeatedly shows up uh, when he's dealing with this festival cycle in John five through ten, um, and the the Jews seem to think that the uh, Sabbath is all about uh, legislating and controlling people's behavior, uh, but Jesus wants to bring God's gifts to the people uh, and not uh, just control their behavior. Well, I want to pick up on a comment you made a moment ago, Jeff. Then. The inadequacy of old old covenant forms and uh, the inadequacy of the old covenant. You have an an angel, as you said, who's a, who'd be a, a kind of a manager of the old covenant order, and that the water that's um, he stirs up the water so that it can heal. And that links up with the use of water imagery previously in John, and uh, frequently representing. Uh, you have the contrast between the water from Jacob's well and the water that Jesus gives in the previous chapter, uh, that contrast between old and new. Uh, that's how the signs start with the contrast between the water purification for the Jews and the wine that Jesus brings. We have that transformation of the old into the new. And you have, again, that um, the same kind of water playing a similar kind of role here, representing part of the representation of the old covenant, but an old covenant that 
uh, is not sufficient to bring the healing uh, to the flock of God that Jesus that Jesus brings. The collection of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed, um, maybe we're supposed to look back to the priestly restrictions upon the blind and the lame for entering into service, and also David's um, words, I think, in Second Samuel chapter 5, concerning the blind and the lame, or what was taken from David's words, the blind and the lame not entering the house. And this man is someone who's excluded from the house, and he's outside, he's not able to fully enter in to with the worship of the people of God, but the healing, the healings of Christ are often not just demonstrations of power and not even just signs, but in this case, it's inclusion of people back into a life that they've been um, held out from, the life of the worship of God. Yeah, so in, in the setting um, in Jerusalem, the temple city would uh, would be consistent with that. Um, I think also, I also thought that that list is reminiscent of some of the Isaiah prophecies about the return from exile and the Lord leading the exiles back into the land. And he's leading this ragtag bunch of uh, the sick, the blind, the lame, and the withered. Those are the ones, those are the returned exiles, uh, Isaiah 32 and some other places that have that. So Jesus is, the, Jesus is a, uh, again, you have this overlap of first exodus, second exodus, uh, first First entry into the land and re-entry into the land after the exile. Those um, those Old Testament settings are kind of uh, overlaying each other here. I was going to I was going to ask if you had any firm thoughts about which feast is uh, being referred to here. I've always thought that it's just the the Sabbath. It's the first feast listed at uh, Leviticus twenty three, so that you have this cycle of feasts or this um, cycle in John of festivals, the Sabbath mm-hmm. and the Passover and six and tabernacles and seven and eight. And then um, festival of light Hanukkah in 10. It, it would just work if it's simply yeah. the Sabbath day. Yeah. Interesting. It is a Sabbath. The fact that it's a Sabbath doesn't necessarily mean it's the weekly Sabbath because there are Sabbath like days that are part of longer festivals. But, but the sequence, that sequence does make, Makes sense. Yeah, I like that. I think Jim Jordan has argued that it might be a feast of booths mm-hmm. uh, based on, uh, I can't remember his arguments, uh, but it still seems to me like it, it works for just a ordinary Sabbath, which is also a feast. This is, again, a um, sign with two episodes within it. When we've seen a couple of the, o- the other signs that we've looked at to this point, there is a sign and then there's a conversation that is a significant interchange afterwards. And we see that again here. There's uh, in, there's the healing, then there's the conflict with the Jews, but then there's this encounter later on between Jesus and the healed man in the temple. And it seems that this is part of what we're supposed to um, be understanding from what t- has taken place. It's not just Jesus did this great thing, but here's a a conversation that helps us to understand what it might have meant. Right, and that that conversation goes into a uh, a, a pretty rich Trinitarian kind of discourse. It begins with Jesus saying that my Father's working until now, and I myself am working. In verse seventeen, and uh, the Jews object to that, 
And then Jesus starts talking about his relationship to the Father in, I think, ways that are very profound description of the intertrinitarian relation. It's interesting that Jesus, when he's when he's challenged, don't want to be misunderstood in this analogy, but there's there's a certain Donald Trumpishness about Jesus' response to opposition. <laughs> that was not what I was expecting you to say. <laughs> Instead of politely qualifying or demurring or backing off, he always says something even more provocative. <laughs> right, so why why are you why are you telling this man to break the Sabbath? And he says, "Well, my father's working until now, and I myself am working." Uh, and he knows that's going to provoke them to, well, you know, they become murderous by verse 18. They want to kill him now because he's committed a blasphemy. Jesus doesn't hold off. He begins to describe even more in even more detail about his unique relationship with the father and how he only does what he sees the father doing and how he has this unique relationship of love with the father. If he, if he wanted to calm the Jews down, this is not, this is not the way to do it. <laughs> Once again, as in the first sign, um, there is the fact that he does not initially initially know who it was who healed him. Um, just as in the first sign, they don't know how the water became wine or that the wine was indeed water beforehand. Um, and that theme of not knowing, um, what do you think we're supposed to make of that? Do you think there's um, some image of a proper movement towards belief that's being shown here. Yeah, I think that, that I would at least initially see that in, in connection with the comment you made earlier, Alistair, about discipleship. And you have this encounter with Jesus, which is kind of, Jesus is still kind of incognito. And then you've had an encounter, you're healed, you know that you've been healed, but you don't yet know the source of that healing. And there's a growth into not just into uh, knowing who Jesus is, but when the man finds out who Jesus is, he goes and reports it to the Jews. And uh, verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. So now he's, he's turned into a witness. He's not simply a recipient of Jesus' uh, healing power, but he's a witness to Jesus' healing power. And again, the same thing happens to the blind man who becomes uh, more and more confident in his witness to and he starts he starts giving an apologetic uh for jesus against the jewish opposition so uh, that would be my first thought is to see that as part of that part of the emergence of uh knowledge and you could probably fit that into the larger scheme of john's gospel and how john talks about faith and talks about seeing and believing and uh the way he describes the faith that leads to eternal life i think that these, these incidents are are depictions of that growing of that growth in faith. The answer that the um, lame man or the healed lame man gives to the Jews is an interesting one. It would seem to be a strange answer to their question. They say it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. And then almost he excuses it by saying that, well, the person who healed me told me to take up my bed, which again, would seem to give mm -hmm. Jesus a status that is um, arresting to us. I mean, that he would be able to give such a command um, is connected with his power to heal. Right. Yeah. And uh, it's arresting, it's certainly arresting to the Jews. Who is this guy that thinks that he can, he can order you to break the Sabbath? He's already claiming a kind of divine authority in, in their mind. He's, He's claiming to be able to overrule 
one of the commands of God. And it's also the word of Jesus that has this power that goes all the way back to John 1. But when Jesus then is speaking about his authority in verse 25, he says an hour is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And reminds us that all of this is ultimately about uh, death, our mortal existence. Um, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed is just symbolic of uh, our death-like state. And uh, Jesus is the one who comes and gives us new life, resurrection life. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm -hmm.